Well, let's take our Bibles and turn together to Acts chapter 1 and uh, the study we're doing in the early days of the Christian church. You know, none of us likes change. We've had to do a lot of changing in our personal lives recently, as some of you know, uh, changing country, changing language, (laughs) ongoing task, changing habits, you know, of... uh, what you eat, when you eat, how much you eat, how much you eat. Uh, A lot of of changes have been going on. There there aren't many plus sides to changing your church as a minister in your life because you you lose something of that steady getting to know people over a prolonged period of time. And I always wanted a church where I could be for 30 or 40 years. (laughs) This isn't it, really. Uh, <clears throat> but you know, one of the things that happens when you go to church for the first time as the, the pastor is that there are always those people who come to you and they'll say, we're so glad that we've got a new pastor because we need change around here. And you listen to them as they tell you about what they want to see changed and so on. And it, everything is fine. Everything in the garden is rosy until, until you try to change their thing then there's trouble. They want to see change here and here, but they don't want to see change there. And and it's the way with all of us. There are things that we really struggle with, and all of us, actually, if we're really honest with ourselves, struggle with change. Well, we read an account tonight of a moment in the lives of the apostles, right at the very early stages of Christianity, where they had to deal with, I think, the most radical change that they'd had to face in their entire lives. Here they were, Jesus had left, what were they to do next? That was their question, and you may immediately wonder whether that has any relevance to us today, but it does have, because like them, we find ourselves in the very same position in time as they do in this respect, that we live post-ascension and pre return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, in spite of what you may have read in the newspapers, we're still living pre-return of the Lord Jesus. You see, as we began the book of Acts, as we ended the book of Luke, well, you ended it some time ago with Dr. Riken, but as we began the book of Acts, we discovered that what controls the story now, what controls the story of the church and of Jesus is his ascension into glory. That's how Luke ends Acts. Uh, that's how Luke ends Luke, and that's how Luke begins Acts. He points us to the fact that the Lord Jesus, who's risen from the dead, has ascended into glory and now reigns. He is the King. He is exalted. He's very high, and he's ruling the world and he's ruling history for the sake of his church. Jesus has not stopped doing anything. He still lives. He still reigns. He still operates in the world. He's still doing and teaching the church today every bit as much as ever he did, except he does it from that position of being exalted, having been raised very high. Now, the very last part of the section we looked at last week reminds us that he was carried up to heaven, and as he's taken up to heaven, we're told, there was a cloud that took him from their sight. His going is obscured by a cloud. 
Now, the significance of that is that wherever God appears in the Bible, his glory is often masked by a cloud. He appears on Mount Sinai, and there's a heavy cloud that descends on Mount Sinai to prevent people from seeing the splendor of the glory of the Lord Lord on Mount Sinai. And so Jesus' ascent to the glory that he had with his Father before the world was is masked by the cloud that hides the glory as Jesus penetrates the glory of God without fear and without being destroyed by it. In other words, the Lord Jesus is resuming the place of power and authority that he had with his Father before the world was. The word heaven or sky is is repeated here. It's the same Greek word, but it's always used of that place of supreme authority. Now, of course, he's coming again. We've been reminded of that at the end of that section. Men of Galilee, this Jesus, this Jesus, not another, not someone looking like him or pretending to be him or someone doing similar things, but this same Jesus will come again the same way you, got him, you saw him go into heaven. So this, mar- this is the thing that masks the age, marks the age that we are living in just now. We live between Jesus gone and Jesus coming. Jesus ascended, Jesus descending at the end of history. And the one thing that continues in this age is this great responsibility that the Lord Jesus, before he goes, places on the church of getting the gospel out to the world. That really is the church's role at the moment. But the Lord Jesus hasn't stopped working today. He is ruling history from his throne. King Jesus reigns in glory over history for the sake of his church on earth as the church gets the gospel out to the world. Now that's a summary of where we've come so far. So it's a great picture, isn't it? Jesus exalted, reigning over history, for the sake of the church on earth, till the ends of the age. And then you read this part that we just read, and you wonder why. Well, there's lots of preachers wonder why. If you look at their commentaries, they deal with the first part, and then they skip this bit, and they go on to Pentecost. Pentecost is exciting. Jesus going is exciting. The Great Commission to go out into all the world and be witnesses and so forth, that's, you can preach, that will preach. Pentecost will preach. Sometimes it preaches better than it should, but Pentecost preaches. But how do you preach about an election? How do you do that? Well, you're going to find out tonight. <laughs> this, this story, you see, is not mere filler. This isn't the cereal they add to the real stuff, you know, to the hamburger to make it. You know, well, they do that in Britain. They, have, they add filler to hamburgers so that you don't get real meat. You get meat plus. And the plus stuff is the filler. Nor is it a mistake. When I was growing up, people would say, when they were preaching on the book of Acts, they would say, you know, this was a mistake. The disciples, you know, the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. They don't know what they're doing. They're completely incapable, you know. Although they've been with Jesus all those years, they can't make a decision. They're still, they're still living, as it were, as if Jesus hasn't really ascended. And actually, what they should have done is wait for the Apostle Paul. He was the twelfth. If only they'd waited, God would have sorted it out in the end. Have you heard that? Well, that's what I was told as I was growing up. And it never, it never seemed right. There, there isn't one hint in the text 
of criticism of this action. And why so much space? Luke is not in the habit of wasting space on his manuscript, precious, costly, that he wants to fill with information for you to learn this evening. Why the space? Why no criticism? Answer, it must be significant. It must be telling us something about the reign of Jesus now, in glory, for the church, with respect to our mission to the world. So what is it telling us? I think it's telling us this. That in this period, what actually takes place during this waiting period between Jesus going and the day of Pentecost is that the risen Lord's command is obeyed, his people are gathered, and his word is fulfilled. Let me tease that out for us. First of all, the reigning Lord's command was obeyed. What did he say to them? He said, wait in Jerusalem. Why wait? Because he had to ascend to the place of power and authority. Why Jerusalem? Because in prophecy, Jerusalem is the center of the world. It is the holy city. It is to Jerusalem the nations will come. We'll see that in chapter 2. It is from Jerusalem the nations are to be reached with the word of God. Wait in Jerusalem. So what did they do? Well, at the beginning of this section, we're told exactly what they did. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. See, what strikes me here is this. Jesus has gone. Jesus is absent. And how are they behaving? They are behaving as if Jesus is still there. They're behaving as if Jesus is still alive. They're behaving as if they still have a relationship with Jesus. They're obeying his commands. He's not there visibly, but he's there on their minds, weighing on their conscience. His word is their command. And there they are, these early Christians, and from the get-go, they are being obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's absolutely vital that we grasp that principle this evening. They believed the word of the angels. They made their way back to the upper room from the Mount of Olives. Now, is that significant? Is it significant that they were on the Mount of Olives or not? Well, in the Old Testament, the Mount of Olives is mentioned in prophecy. It's the place where the Lord will come again in judgment against the nations that fight against his people. That day will come. That day of judgment will arrive. Did they stay there waiting for it? No, that day is in the future. They've been told that day is known only by the Father. It's above your pay grade to know that day. So what do they do? For now, the Mount of Olives is the point of our Lord's departure to heaven. And the Mount of Olives is the point of the apostles' departure to go in obedience to Christ, to Israel, Jerusalem, and the nations. In Jesus' name, before the great and glorious day of the Lord. Obedience lies at the heart of what it means to be someone who knows Jesus Christ. Obedience is not 
contrary to the good news of the gospel. Obedience is not in opposition to believing and knowing in your heart that your relationship with God is by grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. All of grace, all of grace. It's all of grace. Obedience is not contrary to that, does not contradict that, does not take away from that. Obedience flows from a heart that knows that it is what it is by the grace of God, that I am who I am by the grace of God. We were safe for obedience, weren't we? Where our great God and Savior redeemed us from lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous to obey him. The reigning Lord's command is obeyed. Number two, the reigning Lord's people are gathered. Because they came back from seeing Jesus go, this time they came back as a church. They came back as a congregation of his people, a community of believing people. We don't know which room they went back to. Maybe it was the upper room where they'd had the Last Supper. The same room, perhaps, in which Jesus had appeared to them many times during that six-week period while he was appearing to them. What we are told is that they came back as disciples. They came back as a group of followers of Jesus. A number of disciples are mentioned there. Various groups are mentioned. But the word disciple, of course, means a learner, someone that Jesus has called to himself to follow him, to listen to him, to learn from him, to be mentored by him. And the followers of Jesus are identified as containing two significant groups of people. Do you notice that? They're the women who are mentioned. A number of women, including Mary, the mother of the Lord. Uh, these women were significant in the early church. They appear all over the place in the story of Luke. These women, some of them were wealthy women. They supported with their wealth the ministry of Jesus and the disciples that's why they're able to go wandering around, and that's why if you ever, were ever uh, of a kind of, uh, of questioning mindset, you ever wondered why it was that none of them had to do a day's work, and why did the fishermen not have to go and fish for their living? Why was that? It was because they were being supported by a number of wealthy women. If you're a wealthy woman, you're, we're glad you're here. Uh, they were key people. They were key people, not just because of that, but they were key people. You'll remember, they were devoted to the Lord Jesus. They were there when no one else was there in the morning of the resurrection. They were there. They're the first people to see Jesus alive. They were key in the story as witnesses to the resurrection. These women were important. This is the last time we see Mary, the mother of Jesus, mentioned in the Bible. And then there were Jesus' brothers. They become significant. They, were, they weren't at all significant in Jesus' lifetime. All we're told about them in his lifetime was they were unbelievers. They did not believe in him. They, they were, you know, coming along. They wanted to put him into an insane asylum. They came along one day, or, you know, these big brothers of his, they came to kind of get their brother and, and take him aside and, and tell him, look, you better stop doing this or they're going to do something bad to you and so forth. They were unbelieving, but something had happened. What had happened was this. We're told that when Jesus appeared, he appeared to James, one of his brothers. He appeared to him. And apparently, the appearance to James made a difference to the rest of the family because by this stage, all of them now believe in the Lord Jesus. These two significant groups. But I want you to notice that these groups with the rest are together. All these, they were together. That word isn't translated in the English versions that we have at all. But in the Greek, the word together is there. 
And it's important because of its Old Testament connotations. In the Old Testament, the, the word together suggested God's people, the congregation of Israel, gathered as God's people. And you find this same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Or in Psalm 55, the people were gathered together and the kingdom served the Lord. Or Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together. It's the people of God together. They were together as a congregation. They were not only together, but they were there with one accord, with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. There was unity of purpose and intentions. Four times this phrase is used in the book of Acts, usually of the unified, hostile purposes of their non-Christian enemies. It's used by Paul once in Romans 15 verse 6 that gives us, I think, a clue as to how it's being used here. So that with one accord... With one mouth you may glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that captures the mood. They were together with one accord of one mind, with joy and faith and hope. This is no beaten crowd of folks who have lost their hero. This is people who have met their hero alive after his passion. And they're alive with this truth. They're gripped by this truth. They're together and they're of one mind. They know why they're there. They know what they're doing. They've come together as a congregation of Jesus people and they've come in one accord to do what they were told to do and to wait for the promised spirit and they're praying together. They're praying together because there's no work that God ever chooses to do in the world with his people whereby without which he does not mobilize his people to pray for that work to be done. And there's a model here, isn't there? That if we are convinced that God has a work for us to do, that work must be bathed in prayer or it will come to nothing. God's people are gathered. That's the second thing this is telling us. But the third thing we see here is that the reign of Jesus is seen not only in the fact that his command is obeyed and his people are gathered, but also in the fact that his word is fulfilled. You see, in the, in the passage, we, we discover that Jesus has many disciples. There's one subgroup I haven't mentioned yet in this section who are important in understanding what's going on here. You guess who they are? They're the, you don't shout out here, that's good, because I answer my own questions. They're, they're the apostles. He, he, he mentions them, the, the twelve the ones he'd chosen to be with him. And these are always distinguished in the Bible from the wider body of believers. Uh, and that's important because the word apostelos was an ambassador commissioned by a king or a ruler and designated with authority to speak in his name with his authority. So that in the ancient world, if a king sent an apostle as his emissary, the word of the apostle was the word of the king. That's important. Before Jesus left this planet, Jesus commissioned the twelve as his emissaries, his ambassadors. He gave them authority to speak in his name so that they are in place of Christ. When they speak, they listen to you, they listen to me. If they don't listen to you, they won't listen to me, Jesus says. That, that's not you, that's the apostles. He says in Matthew 10, records it, he who receives you receives me, he who rejects you, 
rejects me. The apostles are sent in Jesus' name. And all that we, all that we know about Jesus, we know through them. Maybe you're not, you're not a Christian, you don't understand this, but this teaching about the apostles is vital for us as Christians because all that we know about Jesus, we know about these men who were with him, who were eyewitnesses and earwitnesses of his life and his teaching, who communicated that to us. This is absolutely vital for our understanding of our faith. Their testimony sealed by their blood is part of our argument for the reality of what it is we know about Jesus. Well, it's at this point that we see the apostles at center stage. One of the things we learned when we were looking at the beginning of this book is that the theme of Acts, in many ways, is the theme of restoration. Jesus talked about this a lot. While he was here, he illustrated what it meant by raising the, by raising the dead and by healing the sick and so on, that he had come into the world to restore not only to restore broken bones and dead bodies, but also people's relationship with God. Restoration was on his agenda. We find this agenda of restoration kicking in here because the first apostle to stand up and to speak to the crowd was Peter. Luke has made much about Peter's failure. Peter was so like us. Peter's going to talk about Judas, but you know Peter before? Peter was as bad as Judas. What Peter did was just as bad as what Judas did. On the scale of things, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. He was the rock. He'd been where no one else or very few of the other apostles had been. Judas was not on the Mount of Transfiguration to see Jesus displaying the majesty of God. Judas wasn't in the garden seeing Jesus praying great drops of blood. Peter was. Peter was close to Jesus, even closer than Judas was. And he denied Jesus, and the air around him was turning blue with the oaths and curses that he swore. I never knew the man. Now Peter's standing. What, what I admire about the Bible is its absolute honesty and integrity. It tells you a lot about Jesus, and he never does anything sinful. But when the people who gave us the story talk about themselves, they're absolutely, brutally honest about themselves. But now Peter is standing. He is a restored leader. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, and he's going to speak. You see, Jesus had said, you're going to be restored, Peter. You're going to fall. You're going to make a mess of your life but you're going to be restored in the end. And when you're restored, I want you to strengthen your brothers. Now, that's what he's going to do. And he's going to strengthen his brothers the way we strengthen one another, his brothers and sisters in the family of God. We strengthen each other through the Word of God, and that's what he does. That's what Peter does when he stood up. Brothers, implying brothers and sisters, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. 
and he talks about the Bible, and he addresses two issues that were pressing issues for the church. There was the issue of the traitor, and there was the issue that, uh, uh, of, the, of the twelve, uh, or the absence of the twelve. There was the traitor. This was a major problem, wasn't it? For the, for the disciples, it was a pastoral and theological problem. How could this happen? How could it be that one of us, one of us, betrayed Jesus? Jesus had talked about someone betraying him. He'd never mentioned Judas by name. He had left them all feeling, was it I? Could I do this? Was it me? Lord, was it I? And he'd done that deliberately. But now someone had actually done it. One of their own number had betrayed Jesus. He was the one, he was the one who handed Jesus over to the authorities. He shared our ministry, he says. He was numbered among us, verse 17. And he betrayed the Lord Jesus. That was a problem to the people there. It was a pastoral problem. It was a theological problem. How could this happen? How could Jesus let this happen? How can I believe in a reigning Lord Jesus who is ruling history for the sake of the church if he cannot even sort it out that his chosen twelve are loyal to him? How can I trust him? Peter stands up and he says, Brothers and sisters, I know what's going on in your mind. I know that this issue is being talked about by people out there in the streets. It's causing a problem to us and our witness. But I want you to know this happened so that Scripture might be fulfilled. And he quotes from David, and I want you to notice that he says about David that David was not speaking in his, under his own impulse. He was speaking under the direction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. And I want you to notice what he says about that. He says it was in the plan of God. It was in the purpose of God. That did not mean that Judas was not responsible for his own actions. He made his own decisions. He made his own choices. He is guilty. Human responsibility is essential here. He is guilty of deliberate unrighteousness. That's the word that's used in the original. Unrighteousness. But human responsibility for guilt in no way trounces divine sovereignty. Far from being something that Jesus had not foreseen or which had taken him by surprise, the Scripture had predicted that this would happen. Peter says to them, look, you need to know that as a bunch of people here, the seeds of every known sin are latent in our hearts. As you as I come to this story tonight and we read the story of Judas, there's a Judas inside each of us and a choice that we must make. Will I allow that impulse to be like Judas or be like Peter to deny the Lord Jesus, to denounce the Lord Jesus? to betray the Lord Jesus? We have to ask ourselves the question. For there's a traitor in every one of us. This is captured by Johann Hermann's well-known hymn, Who Was the Guilty? 
Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus has undone thee. I crucified thee. Oh, the problem of the traitor. And that's resolved by looking at the Bible. But there was a second problem, the problem of the twelve. Because after the restoration of Peter, there had to be the restoration of Israel. You see, the number twelve wasn't just tradition. Jesus had twelve, we should have twelve. The number twelve wasn't kind of magic, magic number, you know, just called out of the air. Number twelve is a good number, good number. Good small group. About 12 people. And all the sociological studies tell us that. It's good. That's not the reason for the 12. You know the reason for the 12. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chosen 12 disciples. Why? Because on on the mount, in the sermon, with the 12 disciples around him, Jesus assumes the place of God who gives himself the law to his people, to new Israel. Or in the language of John, Jesus had said, I'm the vine, you, 12 of you, you are the branches. Jesus is establishing a new Israel. Their number makes a theological statement. They're the people Jesus chose to be the representatives of a restored Israel. As someone has put it, there could be no witness to the ends of the earth until the Messiah's claim on the whole house of Israel had been reiterated. The twelve had to be reestablished. They could not be Messiah's witnesses until they represented the full number of a reunited, renewed Israel of God. Israel in its fullness, not just a remnant, not just a couple of tribes or even eleven of the tribes, but all of the tribes, because the gospel was for Israel and the nations. So that was the issue of the number and the office. Well, again, the office was, and they spell it out here. Peter spells it out here. To be one of the twelve, you had to have been an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. That was important. That was absolutely vital to be an apostle. But to be one of the twelve, you had certainly to be qualified at that level. The Apostle Paul, of course, he was an eyewitness of the resurrection. He met the risen Lord in glory, and and he received a direct calling of the risen Lord. But even the Apostle Paul never, never for one moment suggests that he should have been among the twelve. In fact, he always makes a distinct reference to the twelve. If you read... uh, 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about the resurrection, he says this about Jesus. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. He appeared to Kephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also me. The twelve. To be one of the twelve meant to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. It meant to be a companion of the Lord throughout his earthly ministry. Paul wasn't that, so he couldn't be one of the twelve. It meant to be a companion of the Lord. Why? Because their role was to be able to affirm to people that's what Jesus was like. Not just Jesus was alive. This 
Jesus who was alive was the Jesus we knew. He was the Jesus we walked with. He was the Jesus we talked with. He was the Jesus we ate with and slept with. He is the Jesus we knew throughout the whole period of his earthly life. It was that Jesus we saw alive after his passion. In fact, Jesus had said this in John's Gospel, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, who proceeds from the Father, who bears witness to me, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. That was vital to be one of the twelve. So when even Paul is converted and becomes an apostle, he has to go to Jerusalem to meet the twelve. Because the twelve were going to be passing on the tradition, the story, the teaching of Jesus. They were there in the church to make sure that the message was credible and believable. Because they had a direct line to Jesus himself. But the third thing that we learn about these twelve is that they had to be chosen by Jesus. They had to be chosen by Jesus. That was the conviction of the early church, and that's the conviction of Peter. Jesus must choose who. Now, inter interesting the approach they took, isn't it? First of all, they said, let's, let's decide who would qualify. Who was with Jesus from the beginning, and who was an eyewitness of the resurrection? Well, apparently about two guys emerged who had been with him from the beginning and had been eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Both were qualified. One was not better than the other, but which was Jesus' choice? So they prayed, and they cast lots, and this is the point of the whole story. The Lord Jesus made his choice. The Lord is reigning in heaven, in glory, for the sake of the church on earth. And Jesus makes his choice. Now you say, we don't cast lots today. In the Old Testament, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So why? Well, the connection with the twelve is the answer. You go to the book of Joshua, when Joshua is dividing the inheritance of Israel up among the tribes, he does so by casting the lot. What is he doing here? In Acts, he, he is preparing them for the inheritance. But the inheritance was never a bit of real estate in the Middle East. The ultimate inheritance was going to be the whole world. Jesus has spelled that out. The message was going out to the whole world. All the ends of the earth were going to seize the salvation of our God. That was the inheritance. And so, following Joshua, using the model Joshua used for the first and the last time in the New Testament, it's never used again by the apostles. They choose Matthias on the basis of Jesus' choice. And the twelve are complete again. And they never ever do anything to make up the numbers, ever, ever again. That's it. They're ready now for the Spirit to fall. They're ready for the work to begin, whereby their inheritance of the nations 
will come to them. And so when James dies, they don't replace him because the 12 are complete now. And when you scroll forward to the end of the story and you look to the point at which the inheritance is now received, the new heavens and the new earth are united in the great cosmic inheritance that God has prepared for his people. The whole thing in the new city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, is built on the foundation of the twelve. Twelve again. Jesus' purpose is ready to kick in for the rest of time. Now, what's my take home from this? I live the same place you live. We live after the ascension, before the return. Now that Jesus has gone back to heaven, are things different? Yes and no. Yes, they're different. He's no longer visible anywhere. You can go to Rome and maybe see the Pope, but you can't go anywhere to see Jesus. But no, yes and no, for he is still Lord of the church. He still continues to guide, to teach, to rebuke, to direct, to encourage. Augustine said, he has departed, and behold, he is here. He's departed, but behold, he is here. He is here as really, actually better, better. Because we have the Spirit. Because if he was in the room today and you were going home, well, he'd stay here and you'd go home. <clears throat> and you wouldn't see him until whenever, next Sunday. By the Spirit, <clears throat> the risen Lord's exalted in glory is with his people to the end of the earth, to the end of the age. Christ still rules the church. He does it through the apostolic word that's in your hands to feed you, to sustain you, and to prepare you for all the good things that he is preparing for those who love him. We pray together. Father, thank you that you have brought your word to bear on these great truths with a view to encouraging our hearts to know that the Lord Jesus is with us by the Spirit here Especially he is in heaven, but by the Spirit he is with us in this room. Spirit of Jesus, Spirit of Jesus, this evening will you make the Savior real to our hearts. Spirit of Jesus, will you lift us up that we might love him and obey him and gather before him and exalt him and proclaim him to the world. Spirit of Jesus, exalt the Lord Jesus among us, we pray. In his strong name, amen.